Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Woke up this morning into my car to start my day. First stop is my buyer who six months ago walked away. When I arrived, he treats me like commodity. Back on his inner connect, he wants price and delivery. And if we're over $20, he tells me this business we're gonna lose. He's got a singing that old don't know value blues. Welcome to the Value Clarity Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Boundy. We're here talking about value, which is the meaning of life for your business is to create more value for your customers than it costs you to deliver. And if that's the meaning of life, we better figure out what value you deliver to your customers. Today, I have Jose Palomino, a brilliant marketing expert, a CEO and founder of Value Prop Interactive, podcast host. I've been on his podcast, a brilliant marketing and sales mind. Jose, welcome. Well, glad to be here, Mark. Absolutely. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself, your journey, and and what you, how you help your clients. Sure. So it's a it's a long journey, <laughs> but it's <laughs> I've I've come to realize that uh, wow that, that's a long journey, but it's been um, st- starting my career in uh, te- technical and operational roles, moving into sales and marketing. And uh, so doing that mostly in the high tech, uh, IT oriented world. And then a little less than 15 years ago, started Valley Prop uh, with an eye towards really bringing together strategy, marketing and sales as a discipline. I saw those things as being very siloed and have uh, focused primarily on B2B companies and usually owner led or mid market companies. I mean, I do work with some very large corporates from time to time. But my sweet spot where I really enjoy working with people is that is that owner running a, a business with maybe $10 million of turnover and a 30, 40 person staff. And they're reading books like, you know, like Blue Ocean Strategy, which is a great book. Or they're looking at examples like like uh, like Apple and they say, well, why can't we be that? Well, because you're a $10 million company and you're not that. It's something else. Uh, what does winning look like for you there? So what we try to focus on and what we do with our clients is help them look for what we call a competitive edge, right? There's little things you do actually have uh, huge impacts. And the simple example, and we use this all the time, is when you look at the Olympics, uh, any winner like Usain Bolt or whatever, they're winning by fractions of a second. But when they stand on the podium, they get the whole gold medal. And that's how it is in sales, right? In business is like, if you win the deal, the other guy did not win the deal. And conversely, if they win the deal, you know, the last thing you want is to get that call that says, you know what, you were really close. We almost went with you and you get exactly $0 for that response. I mean, that's not very successful. So the theme that you've talked about and that, you know, that you've built this, this year around, around value and creating value is what we try to really inculcate in our clients to think about 
all the little things you do, because they're no little things. They're no unimportant steps. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I talk about, and when I'm working with my clients, I may say almost the identical thing, that small differences make a huge difference to your customer. Um, And I don't use the Olympics. I actually use a business example. When I was a product manager for a wire and cable company, I sold a cable that went into a kind of a robotic application where the that cable was moving constantly. And so we would put it on a little test fixture and figure out how many flexes that cable could get. And mine could get 100 million plus and somebody else has got 80 million. Uh, that's 80 million is a whole lot of movement. That's a long, 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 long product life, but I could get more. And there were some people who said, well, you know, my, my, device only needs 50 million, but there was one that uh, had was in a heavy industrial application. So if that robot went down, it was hundreds of thousands of dollars of lost throughput for the factory. And so if you were the factory owner and you bought one person's robot versus another, and one could guarantee no downtime and one couldn't, that no brainer, right? right exactly. It's it's a no brainer. So a tiny a tiny delta in cable performance made a huge difference in the saleability of that robot for my customers, and they went with me every single time because they were not going to be caught flat footed, not being able to guarantee the flex life or, or you know the the longevity. Yeah, but of in, in that scenario, and Mark, I know you've talked about, you know, you always talk about looking past like the obvious customer you're talking in front of, but look, think of your customer's customer, which is really the high end of selling well, is you're still selling the cable or the wire, but you help them see the impact on their robotics business. So you didn't have to be in the robotics business, but in effect, you added value to the robotics purchase it, and what was- that meant. Yeah, exactly. And about a dozen different industries made my top 12 customers. And so I had to learn every single one of those industries so that I could speak my customer's language and sometimes the customer's customer's language. And so the the secret is, and the mindset is, I don't sell them my stuff. I grow my customer's business using my stuff, which now means I have to learn my customer's business so I can help them grow. And so that business acumen and customer acumen is central. Does that coincide with your thinking? Oh, a- absolutely. I mean, you need, it's interesting. There's, there's actually, there's a, like an inflection point. Um, you're a small company. Let's say you're a small OEM, $10 million OEM or something. You need to add a salesperson. So your natural, especially if you're as a founder, we're very technically oriented. You think, oh, boy, I need somebody who knows this stuff forward and back. And the reality is you need somebody who's not, who, who is well-versed in the area, but they don't need to be an engineer necessarily. It's great if you have an engineer who can sell, but all too often these small companies put engineers in who can engineer and can't sell. They don't understand all those other things because selling is beyond looking at, as you've well pointed out, what it is that I have to offer you, but thinking about what its implications are downstream. And that's really where you get into those really strategic relationships. So I love, uh, very consistent with what you're describing here, Mark. I love helping customers see the implications of what they do beyond the obvious. I said, if you're just talking to somebody in purchasing and you're not seeing how you actually impact the success of, let's say you're selling a part to Caterpillar or John Deere, what's the implication to them 
on an assembly line where the things coming off the assembly line are $250,000 a unit. And you talk about throughput. Uh, and we're seeing this happening around the world, supply chain shock, right? Because of COVID, uh, the the inability to ship, to ship on time. I'm seeing this in more and more industries that companies are winning just because they had a better supply chain. So again, those are things that don't seem obvious. Well, I want to talk about my thing and why my thing is better. Yes. And even in the case of your cable and wire example, you talked about the better, but then you also help them see what that meant and what they could then promise their customers with your better feature built in. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I had a client who sells pizza ovens, the ovens that go into a pizza parlor. And now sure. the state of the art is the these conveyor ovens. And whenever you've come to pick up a pizza, you see that you put right, the raw pizza right. on one yeah, and a conveyor. local it does that, right. Couple of vendors uh, in that business, one of which is makes the most reliable oven. So the other two you have to buy, if your store needs two ovens, you have to buy three because one is always down and you need those two ovens for every Sunday afternoon. Sure. Right. Um, and so, man, if I can sell you two ovens when you need to, there's a saving. Well, it's interesting. It brings to mind an example, a client we work with and uh, they're in home heating oil delivery, right? So you think what, you know, home heating oil, how exciting is that? Well, it's not, it's a declining market through no fault of any of the participants, just the, everyone's uh, new homes are built with natural gas in mind and yeah. people convert from oil to gas, never the other way around. So the question, of course, they said, how can you help us, you know, stand out, differentiate and so on? I said, well, can you do anything with the oil? And the answer was no, the oil is heating oil number two, it's a global commodity. The price is set every morning, it is what it is. I said, wow, that's tough. And the service levels, you know, were uh, uh, they were a very good company at doing what they do, but there were other good companies that delivered reliably. And, you know, when they had to come up to your house, they brought the hose, they, they delivered cleanly. All of those things were pretty standard. But then they said something that was interesting to me. They said, yeah, we, we were able to cut out overtime deliveries, overtime hours, because that was a real cost to us. I said, how'd you do that? Well, it turned out they had commissioned a, a very different algorithm than the rest of the industry used to, to measure weather days. People who don't have oil don't realize oil companies don't actually have a meter in your house. They estimate based on weather and past utilization that you need a new delivery. If they miss the delivery, you will have no oil and no heat in midwinter, and you're making an emergency call. That's a big deal. So the big game there is automatic delivery. So you sign up and you say, okay, don't miss, don't let my tank run out. The only way to do that reliably is you have to have teams working like six days, seven days a week to make sure you don't miss because you're going to miss. They, they were tired of the overtime hours, so they ended up commissioning new software to improve their operations. I said, wow, tell me about that. How effective has that been? I said, well, the average in the industry is like 95% accuracy for delivery on time. You're going to have misses. That's why you have overtime. I said, how about yours? They said, well, we did 60,000 deliveries last year. And we missed nine deliveries. That's 99.9999. Not quite Six Sigma, but very close. And I said, have you told anybody about this? I said, what do you mean? I said, like your customers that you have literally the most reliable oil delivery available. And who would value that? Well, there's the customer, the two working professionals. They don't want to be hassled. They want to know that their house is going to have it. And I said, would they pay a premium? Well, it turns out they pay about a 50% per gallon premium. 50% per gallon premium Holy. on a global commodity. All right. 
because they can guarantee, and here's how they did it. And we, we devised it very simple. We said, okay, you're so confident in the system. Yeah, we've been doing this for a couple of years. And I said, all right, would you fill somebody's tank 285 gallons at $4 a gallon if you missed an automatic delivery? And I said, sure, because nine deliveries, the most you're going to be spending, you know, it works out to be like $10,000 for that guarantee. So there we missed it guarantee, allowed them to cherry pick the very most desirable, higher paying customers. Now it's still a declining market. It bought yeah. them time to go diversify into other markets to build up their HVAC business. But it was brilliant how it worked for them. Customers are happy because they never worry about running out of oil. They used to with other companies. They don't get the guy who's shopping around with every delivery, like somebody buying mulch. That's not their customer. So it targeted their customer, but it was one thing. And, and you know what the thing about it, Mark, it was something they didn't even think was a marketing thing or sales thing or value prop thing. It was something they did to cut overtime hours. Yeah. And, and you know, a lot of our clients, a lot of our companies we work with, Mark, I'm sure have hidden gems inside their organization, things they're doing well for other reasons that actually have huge value, uh, value proposition implications for their customers. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Great example, Jose. Now, one of the other things you do, and we talked about it, and I had a question I wanted to ask you about it, is your revenue throughput model, where you have over 40 different metrics that uh, determine your company's health, so you can kind of find these hidden gems. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we, we actually run through a process where we look at 48 dimensions. There are eight major categories, right? Some of them obvious, like target market, uh, your value, pro your value proposition, your marketing, your sales. But then we also look at risk and leadership. We look at your production. We look at your customer success and we look at your resources. So like, for example, you say, well, we really need to be at this trade show. And we need to have a big booth. And then you say, okay, how much? Let's, say, let's assume it's true. It's rarely true, but let's say it's true. You needed that trade show. And it turns out that's a $150,000 investment. Well, does your working capital support that? Is that the right strategy for you? Or is that like a, and I've seen this and you have seen this, I'm sure, Mark, somebody like betting the farm on one strategy and not, you know, it's more like hope more than thought goes into that thought, right? And, and so things like that. So when you look at those 48 dimensions, what we're looking for, and it is a throughput measure. I, I'm glad you used that word before. Uh, it comes out of systems thinking, the whole idea that basically opportunities have to come into your business, right? So you have to gather opportunities, the right opportunities, and they get touched by many different processes. It's not just salesperson. I mean, if you're in a very transactional business, maybe it's the salesperson one and done. But in most B2B, it's it's time. I mean, the, the pizza oven thing, that's business development, that's strategic planning, those are executive meetings. That could be a year-long process to get to a significant deal. Yeah. That's, re that's reality. So what would get in the way of that? You know, it's kind of like asking that question. And also, let's say you get the first oven installed or sold. So they did the test oven, it's fantastic. They love it. And then your scheduling for delivery is you're off by three days just because somebody screwed up because your logistics isn't so great. Also, that customer is a little less happy, right? They may not say anything. You may not notice it because, hey, the, the test was a success. Little things are not little things, especially today where the buyer is so empowered. Yeah. So we try to help people just see what their business looks like through that model. Yeah. So here's here's my thing. And I, I challenge salespeople with this or CEOs, excuse me. I challenge CEOs with this. Um, back to the what I said at the beginning of my podcast. I believe that the 
meaning of life for any company is to create more value for your customers than it costs you to deliver. That is the, and, you know, Peter Drucker said, the purpose of a company is to find and create cu- customers. Right. The way you find and create customers is to create more value than it costs to deliver. So by the transitive property, the purpose of a company is to de- deliver more value. So that is the central meaning, the purpose of your business. Now, you, you work with a, a lot of companies, a lot of CEOs, and I want to ask you if you've looked at the, the dashboards, the metrics those company leaders have that they track, that what numbers do they track, and how many of those numbers have anything to do with the value that they deliver for their customers? Do they track customer perceived value at all? So some will do it a couple of different ways. Certainly a lot of people, especially like what I call the Vistage circuit, that yeah. market business owner have um, very much uh, bought into like net promoter. Okay. So they'll try to get a net promoter number. That's okay. And that's a little bit of a trailing indicator. It's not really going to help you. I mean, it's going to help you know if you have a problem, but it's not necessarily going to tell you what, where the problem, it won't give you the dimensions of the problem. Yeah. The challenge. Right? No. And Customer satisfaction type scores are the only thing, but the problem with customer satisfaction, there's two problems. One, it's lagging. Mm-hmm. And two, it only measures the customers that you want. It doesn't measure why you failed on a customer. It doesn't matter, measure when you failed to sell value because they never make it to customer and they never make it to satisfaction score. So it's Um, what statisticians call survivor bias. You're only measuring that data on the people that you successfully sold, not the ones that you swear were a perfect fit, should have bought from us, but didn't. Oh, absolutely. So so, it's a very partial measure. So so to answer your question though, so most of the metrics that people have, first of all, a lot of people don't, don't have as as, as uh, much of a dashboard to begin with. But those who do, okay, those who do are going to measure the obvious things for them, which are all their performance measures in terms of, you know, P&L related things, sales performance, conversion factors, and so on. Uh, in terms of saying, uh, for example, if you were selling, if you were selling a pizza oven, and I don't know the business, but if you were selling that over time, you know, tra- imagine if you tracked, I mean, this may be a ridiculous stat, but like millions of minutes saved for our customers versus the alternative. And there's, a, there's probably a formula for that. That may be a little bit of a vanity metric, but just thinking about that from the perspective of, of your team and creating a mindset. So then you say, well, can we save it? Can we double that? Can we, you know, if we could save two minutes, what, who's to say the science doesn't allow us to save, figure out a way to save four minutes? And so on yep. to maybe have a smaller unit that could be sold to the local pizzeria, not necessarily the pizzeria chain. And you can keep going there, but only if you measure those outcomes in some meaningful way, and it has to be meaningful. And I always say this in, in any kind of sales coaching, I'm sure you do as well, Mark, that something is meaningful to the buyer only if it's meaningful to the buyer, not because <laughs> you think it should be. Yeah. Uh, you're exactly right. Um, I say that value only exists in your customer's mind. Ultimately, so, is it <laughs> right? So, because they're they're the ones deciding to buy or not. So, if you can't show value to your customer, um, you don't have value. Um, and that's why it's called a value proposition. 
Right. Absolutely. Right? We we propose, but that doesn't it's it's not a value declaration or a value proof. It's a value proposition. And so now you have to go through the conversation with the customer to have them validate that and have them and it's not just that value exists, it's how much value exists. Um so in one case a customer might value your small difference in your cable performance and think it's worth a 20% price premium. Um, other people, my biggest customer, when I was in the cable market, they paid 10 times the price of the mm. competitor. And that was cable. That was war and cable. <laughs> <laughs> and my biggest customer, a sophisticated technology company was paying 10 times the price of the next best choice because of I saved them six months on their project cycle. I was the only product that the way they had originally designed their box, I had a cable that could connect two circuit boards that were really close to each other uh, with signals that were super fast. And so you need a, a real precision cable, even though it's super short. And I was the only one who could do that on the design of the boards that they had done. And if they couldn't do it with a cable or something like that, they're going to have to redesign the whole box. That was going to slow the product down by a year. And that was, you know, $200 million a year that they were expecting to sell on this thing, plus the relationship with all their customers to pay, right? So my problem- well, Even more so, I mean, think about that, especially in high tech, if you miss a window by a year, you may miss the window altogether forever. Yeah. Like, yes. so it's 200 million times, however many years you thought you were going to, you're going yeah, to be able to- Yeah, 200 million that. a year for the number of years it takes you to catch up, if any, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. So- um, small differences make a big one. And I'm, I'm kind of passionate about trying to introduce sales and marketing processes that track the value. Typically, here's what our, you know, these are the kinds of outcomes our customers achieve. So I'm going to create marketing materials that talk about those outcomes. And I'm going to track clicks on that content versus my generic company image content. Every time somebody track clicks on the content that I'm the best in the world, you know, out, about an outcome I'm the best in the world delivering, that lead score is much higher than somebody who clicked five times on generic stuff. So I can measure, I, I can measure value from the first click. When somebody agrees to an appointment based on my differentiation, I can measure value. When they say during a sales conversation, yes, I have that problem. And here's how many dollars it's worth. I write the number of dollars and that is the value that I'm delivering. So you can actually measure value from the very first click from the, before you've, their, your customers even thought to call one of your salespeople. That sounds, if you're able to do that, that sounds pretty compelling. Well, that, that would be compelling. But, you know, your question also, though, is the fact that there's there's a bit of a leap, maybe not a leap, but there's a journey for people who've done none of these things to think differently. Right. So you have to. So like, what, where's the bridge to get them thinking about that? And I think what's happening, of course, is, you know, buyers are going in that direction much more quickly, I think, than sellers are even yeah. within the same companies, which is interesting. The buy side of the company is already there. They're 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 insisting on it. They're insisting on that. But one thing that's also happened in terms of like buyer metrics, and I like your take on this too, Mark, is especially in technology, 
technology got besotted with ROI, ROI calculators, total cost of ownership, all that stuff for the last 20 years to the point where buyers don't believe any of it anymore. Every white paper says you're going to save a million dollars or you're going to save 47%, whatever the thing is. So how do we get credibility back to those numbers? Because especially the more sophisticated companies have been touting those numbers for a long time. They've been selling on ROI. I mean, everything from, you know, Microsoft, IBM, whatever, you know, smaller companies, any technology company. And yet I find when I coach those people and I talk to their customers, you know, doing customer qualitative interviews and so on, they just, and I say, look, this will save you 5,000%. And they say, man, maybe, maybe not. You know, they're just, they're not believing. Um, I, I wrote a book about exactly this. Um, so I, I completely agree with you. Um, every time I've, ha- I've worked with somebody in finance to develop a bulletproof ROI calculator and, and Excel tool that was not only brilliantly conceived, but easy to understand and easy to ask questions. One, the first thing that happens when you put that in front of a customer is what I call the battle of the assumptions. Hmm. Let me open up that spreadsheet and I'm going to get it to my finance people. I'm going to look at every formula in every cell and we're going to like battle over your underlying assumptions. And then I'll provide some numbers. And so the sales process actually slows down because of this. It's, It's not the sale anymore. It's this side skirmish that consumes everybody's time. And they also can ascribe nefarious motives if they disagree with your with, with, with your assumptions. Oh yeah. So, exactly. so it, can actually, it can actually really work against you because they think, why would you why would you exaggerate? When we, 100, yeah, 150%. So instead of that, we give the logic behind a, a value calculator as a discovery, sales discovery conversation template. Mm. So let's from the very first discussion with a customer, start talking about outcomes. You know, what kind of outcomes are you achieving now? And why are you talking to me? Something must've happened so that status quo is no longer effective. What's going wrong there? How many dollars a year do you think that problem costs you? And so, and and don't even connect it at at some point, it's too too early even to connect your solution, but you, but you know how many dollars they are, you, they are spending. And so the dollars, are their dollars. The cost is their cost cost. in their mind. And so when you think, when you say, here's our solution and here's how I think it solves your problem. And so you're spending this, what percentage do you think you could decrease these costs by? And you shut up and wait until the answer comes back in dollars. I only, and so you don't have to claim, I think we can make your problem go away at the 85% level. If they say 45%, it's 45%. Right. So you put the, right. You put their number in, in the formula. And so you're walking through your, you're having them create that, that ROI calculator as you go from the very beginning, because if you put that ROI calculator in front of them at the end, it's a cheesy price negotiation ploy. But if you've been doing it since the very beginning, and you're at the end and you're in price negotiation, you can say to you know the purchasing or whoever saying, you know what, I talked to so-and-so over in finance and this is the number they gave me and we, they thought that we could reduce, this is your number. I talked to somebody in, in operations and they thought, 
they could reduce it by this number. I talked to somebody over in risk and they said they, that this was valid to them and they believed it and this is their number. So these are all your numbers. And um, I did this with a software company. The guy was saying, I priced this at about, I priced it to this customer at about $400,000, knowing that they're gonna um, grind me for price and I could really sell it to them for 250. So I put $150,000 of price negotiation room. And so we walked through his values. Like, so if you do this, you're gonna have to hire outside people and there's gonna be keystroke errors and there's gonna be customer service issues because of the keystroke errors. And somebody's gonna, you know, bah, 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 bah. so we found a million two worth of value on his $400,000 that he was ready to drop to 250. So he is saying, ah, oh, man, I'm bummed because I should have priced it higher. Well, that is what it is. First of all, you have to give your customer some reason to buy. So that, that difference between a million two and four hundred, that $800,000 is, is a, is a, it's a reason compelling to reason to buy. Right. Uh, but now when they come to you and say, hey, man, $400,000, that sounds a bit high. Now, out of that $150,000 that you are prepared to discount, how much of it do you think you're going to actually have to discount? Because you got the customer to buy into a million two worth of value. What I love about that too, Mark, is picking up on the customer's own numbers, assessments, and assumptions, because they... Um, Viscerally, they like what they say 45% in the example you just gave. That's probably a number they believe is possible. If you push back and say, no, it's 85%, that may be beyond where they emotionally can connect with that number. They think well, that sounds like an exaggeration, but 45% is what they what they would like to get to. Yeah, yeah. And if you can make your case with a 3x return in the in the 1.2 over 400,000, if you can make your case totally grounded on what they are emotionally committed to then it's not going to be controversial. You're not pushing them outside their comfort zone. And I, I do believe, and I'm sure in the example you gave, that you can hold firm a lot more firmly on your value because the 1.2 is their number. They own it. They believe yeah, it. They own it. And there's so much value there that what if your competitor comes in at the last minute and quotes a substitute product for $260,000? or 230,000, which was below the price that you could. Now that million two in value that you deliver makes you discount proof. Okay, you're 400,000, but you're 160,000 more than them. Let me take from that million two, I will take 160,000 off of that because the, the next best competitive alternative is a lower price than I am. So you have that $800,000 minus 160, you still have a juicy, juicy discount proof value premium. As a matter of fact, your competitor can't give that product away for free. And still be better than and you. Still, and have them be better off. Right. So by selling all of the value in the customer's mind, using the customer's dollars, you not only avoid the battle of the assumptions, you prove your value, and now you make yourself discount proof, you know, competitors discounting proof at that last minute. Uh, and you've engaged all the people, all the stakeholders at your company. Right. And they, and they support, they'll support, they each support one another. You know, it's kind of a version of that, Mark, is, and, and I've done this before where, and I've coached people to do this, is say, you know, if, if, it were, if it were free and we could actually bring about the process improvements you want, what would those improvements be worth? So that's like just 
absent any costs, it's still a million two of savings. It's real. Yeah. That's a real change in their process. And attaching costs to it is, okay, like you said, there has to be a benefit. If it's going to cost me a million two to get a million two back, well, then I can do nothing and be in the same position. And there's always a risk of, will it actually work as well? Would it would I actually see this? You know, there's all those X factors, yeah, which right. is why you, you get a 3X. 3X buffers you in terms of, what if it isn't exactly right? You're still, it's almost hard to not land. 3X somewhere. Yeah. No, I come. I love the 3x. I've I've gone 3x down to 5x. If if the num if the customer has been really fuzzy about the numbers, I can go to 5x if I'm still profitable at 5x. But the customer uh, has been hemming and hawing, or there's we haven't gotten a, that estimate from the customer. They've done the estimate, but they haven't shared it with me. You know, I, we'll we'll have a conversation often. Like, oh, most of our customers achieve an 80% cost savings. What do you think that might be for you? Well, I'm going to keep that number. It's going to be way less than that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now you, you know, it's something less than 80% and your value is less than 80%, but it might be 10, might be 30, might be 45. So now you're estimating. So maybe because they didn't tell me I go from a three X to a five X just because of the inability for that customer to have shared information with me uh, or, and I couldn't go around to their any of their colleagues and get the number, you know, elsewhere. Right. And it also gives you an opportunity to suss out if there's something else going on. Let's, let's yeah. say you were to present to somebody a true, you know, a 300% return on investment. And somehow they still don't move. They don't nudge off of that. Something else is going on. And you need to find that out. And, it, you know, because you say, okay, I'm giving you all the return you asked for, and you're still not ready to move forward not upset about it. I just would like to understand what else is keeping you from doing that. And that other thing is the thing that you didn't know that you need to know to be able to take the deal any further. Absolutely. Well, uh, we keep going over time because, and we're talking about a lot, a lot about my stuff, not about your stuff. What, what do we need to know about you and Jose and Jose's value prop interactive and the revenue throughput model uh, that we didn't get to that we really need to. Yeah, I, 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 Mark, thank you so much. And it's been a great conversation. I love this conversation. It's a, it's a great thing to do. But yeah, I think in simple terms, what we've been doing all these years is helping people find their competitive edge, really what it is that they can do and, and realizing, and this is really the, the kind of the, it, it's not intentionally bad, but a lot of entrepreneurs fall into a trap. A lot of business owners fall into a trap of thinking, innovation like has to be Apple-like. I have to re- like create a revolution in the industry. And those are great if you can do that, if you have the R&D, if you have the idea and so on. But often you can win if, and win consistently, win more and better business if you can find those small edges and just exploit them. That can make a difference. Could take a business from 10 million to 20 million, from 20 to 30, 40. I'm not saying it's going to make you Fortune 500 because- there's other factors that have to play into the, the true, yeah. you know, unique IP and things like that and a massive amount of capital. But you don't have to be Amazon to be winning consistently. And again, just and that's why I do like the runner example, just because they win by just a little bit, but they get the whole gold medal. Yeah. You, uh, you reminded me of a conversation I had with Scott Jordan, uh, the founder and CEO of Scotty Vest, who makes travel vests. So mm-hmm. it's it's a vest that has somewhere between nine and 28 pockets inside. I've, I've definitely seen it. Yes. Right. Absolutely. And when they first came out, 
uh, he was getting really tricked because there, there wasn't so many wireless phones and wireless charging. So he had internal wire routing. So you could put your phone in this pocket and through an internal channel, get your headphones uh, up to your ears. And he was patenting that and talking about all that stuff. And he pretty much figured out that, you know what? People just buy the pockets. Like 10% of his customers bought it for the wire routing and they hardly ever used it. So he said, he started this business thinking he had to have that patent and he had that patent on the wire routing. But what it turns out is being really good at pockets and understanding how to design a pocket so that if somebody leans forward 60 degrees, does anything fall out? Do you design the flap and the zippers so that nothing falls out um, or that people can't pickpocket you? That regular design of a pocket is his differentiation, not the trick patent stuff. That's a great, I love that. That's a great illustration. And that's exactly what I mean, those little things. So that's what we do. We help companies figure that out and then operationalize it, right? So it's not just a big idea. It's also what, okay, how does that translate into marketing? How does that translate into our sales process? But again, looking for those little edges, but they multiply, as you know, this Mark. It's like, if you improve this times this times this, all of a sudden the number at the back end is pretty significant. Yep. And uh, that's what we love to do. And that's that's what we focus on. Very cool. How do people get a hold of you, Jose? Well, I'm on LinkedIn. So Jose Palomino at LinkedIn, easy, easy. And then our website is valueprop.com. And if you go valueprop.com slash edge, talk about a competitive edge program that digs into competitive edge development specifically. Um, and happy to talk to anybody who thinks they have an issue with trying to find that edge uh, so they can win more and better business uh, more easily. That's great. Jose, thank you so much. I really appreciate your investing your time and sharing your expertise. My pleasure, Mark. It's been a lot of fun. Yep. And thanks everybody for joining us on this episode of the Value Clarity Podcast, where we remind you that your value only exists in your customer's mind, which means that business is a lot more like brain surgery than you thought. Thanks and have a high value day. Well, it ain't easy because value's in your buyer's brain. If you're selling on only your features, you're going to drive over you insane. And if you ignore your customer's outcomes, you're bound to be your dues cause you'll be singing those old don't know value this podcast is a part of the c-suite radio network for more top business podcasts visit c-suiteradio.com